Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I've never been this nervous in my life. Greetings from Longtime No See the Podcast. Every week we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! <laughs> what would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on. A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my god, Jack almost fell off his chair. <laughs> be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. Consequence Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to The Spark Parade, where I geek out with artists and entertainers about their cultural spark of inspiration. I'm Adam Unz, at Spark Parade on all social media. Thanks ever so much for joining me this week. I'm talking to Max Borenstein, showrunner, co-creator, and executive producer of the award-winning HBO series Winning Time, The Rise of the Lakers Dynasty. Max's spark is The Circus Animal's Desertion, a poem by William Butler Yeats. If basketball and Yeats don't seem like a natural fit to you, I am here to tell you you're wrong. This is a wide-ranging conversation. We spoke about getting older and taking stock of your life, especially as an artist. We talked about writer's block, the nature of celebrity, social media, and lots of other things. Basically, we've got a lot of juicy topics to dig into, so we better get to it. Quick Max Facts. Max Borenstein is a showrunner, producer, and screenwriter. His writing credits include all of the modern-day Godzilla movies and the Robert Rodriguez-directed Ben Affleck-starring film Hypnotic. He is also, as I previously mentioned, the showrunner of HBO's Winning Time, The Rise of the Lakers Dynasty. As the name suggests, it takes a look at the Los Angeles Lakers in the 1980s and focuses on their lives both on and off the court. Its cast includes John C. Riley, Jason Clark, Jason Siegel, Adrian Brody, Sally Field, Molly Gordon, Quincy Isaiah, and Solomon Hughes, and its second season started on Max on August 6th, which means you can watch it right now. Quick Circus Animals Desertion Facts The Circus Animals Desertion is a poem by William Butler Yeats. It was the last work published in Yeats's final collection, published in Last Poems in 1939. In the poem, he uses the desertion of circus animals as an analogy to describe his failure to find inspiration for poetic creation as he seeks for new inspiration in the last years of his life. And there you have it. Without further ado, let the games begin. Here comes my chat with Max Borenstein about the circus animals' desertion. Do you remember reading this poem for the first time or uh, getting turned on to it? I do. Uh, it was in college. 
I ended up majoring in poetry in college, or I majored in English, and I ended up focusing on poetry. I think I majored in English because I like writing, but I didn't want to major in film. I wanted a kind of broader thing. And then poetry just became is the, by far the best kind of English to study in college because you can read it. You don't have you know you can get a bunch of books and actually get through them instead of having you know Russian literature or whatever the alternative is. And then I just Yeats just became one of my favorite poets. Something about him, and particularly when he writes about writing, and uh, I thought his perspectives just like I don't know they just resonated with me. And in this particular poem always resonated because it's a poem about looking for, searching for something to write about and searching ultimately back where all the ladders start in the fell rag and bone shop of the heart, which feels like I've always kind of connected with that notion of like of looking within and things that feel very personal and then finding the way out through that. Yeah. I, I guess one of the things that really strikes me about this is his earlier work, um, some of the best known poems they can be allegories they can allude to other things but they're these like i don't know i guess this is a, a generalization but at times like these broad sweeping romantic you know a lot of like irish uh, mythology thrown into things and i think as he got older things uh, i don't know if this feels literal there's still stuff there's a lot of very vivid imagery here but um it was maybe a bit more reflective um, oh totally and- yeah, this is like a late work and it feels like it's about, he references all of his old, all of those old poems in it and like he did in the Swan, all of those things. I love some of those, some, a lot of the early stuff, particularly like Easter 1919 and some of those early poems that are about like the revolution and his relationship to Irish republicanism. And it always felt really interesting because it was, because he was sort of in it and also critical of it. I think he was like in the politics of his time and he was very affiliated with it. But at the same time, as an artist, he was someone who couldn't help but reflect on humanity and complexity rather than being overtaken by ideology. And he like there's one of my favorite lines is about like, I think it's from Easter 1919, but it's about like making a stone of the heart to trouble the living stream. This idea that, that, that some of the people that he loved who are now gone, who were, who were fighters, had sort of turned their ideology into the sum total of their humanity and lost that which made them human. I mean, and he admires them, but he also mourns them and grieves them. And he always seems somewhat apart from the true believer types. And I've always kind of felt that way as well. And I think it is kind of a, I think it's something that's, that you tend to be if you're a writer or, you know, to find anything interesting uh, about the world um, you have to look in the gray areas and in the muddy, messy human stuff. And you can have ideals and beliefs, but to be fixated on those, they end up clouding your view of what's truly beautiful and human and complicated and is the messy stuff. And I think for Yeats, he was always that, but it felt this poem very much feels like it's the old man looking back at different styles and different poses and postures and Ultimately, it's the kind of ashes to ashes, dust to dust thing of like, as you get older and you start looking back and you realize that so much of everything else is vanity and everything is, you know, comes and goes. I don't know, this poem always does like, it just brings up so many different things for me. And especially in conversation with all the other Yates stuff that I, that to me just is a big touchstone always. This one feels like when you're at a loss for what to 
make your subject or what something is about or what you should be writing about or why you're writing in the first place, which is a, I mean, it's such a common thing, I think, in, particularly in Hollywood and this business where, you know, and I'm very proud of, you know, I'm proud in different ways of everything that I've done and the things that have been made and the things that haven't. And a lot of the things that get made are things that are fun, entertaining, and they're not going to change anyone's sort of soul and spirit in the way that some of the things that I, you know, when you're coming up as a young writer, you go like, I want to make Citizen Kane or whatever it is. And there's something in this Yates poem that ends up, that to me speaks to like giving it's due both to the big and the small and the, uh, the grandiose and the sort of um, mundane as being equal and as being poten having potential for beauty and for art, uh, which is something that I think, you know, I don't know anyone in this business who doesn't aspire to make art no matter what they're making. I think everyone kind of gets into movies because of that initially. And, you know, Yeats was making popular art in those days when he was doing you know, The Swan and he was make, doing all those plays. But he was still fundamentally trying to grapple with the same shit of the human condition that we all are. And, you know, it sounds highfalutin, but to me, it's the mundanity of that that always just like connects with me and reminds me of the opportunity in everything and anything we do to hopefully speak to someone and speak to some truth and beauty and whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's so complicated. There's I, his work is always very complex. It's very, I don't think dense is the right word, but there's so many ideas packed into these relatively small, um, you know, collections of words. And it's all of those ideas. He was a complicated dude. He had a lot of, you know, there were a lot of times in his life where he was very passionate about uh, all different kinds of things. And I think it's like taking stock of every phase of his life, kind of going back through, I mean, in particular about his writing, thinking about everything that he's accomplished and talking about the inspiration that he drew when he was trying to create those things and saying like, what do I do now? I, you know, my whole life, inspiration just came. I had all of these things around me, all of these, you know, politics and uh, art and whatever, uh, everything that felt so vibrant and so alive. And I mean, this po poem was published a month before he died. So it is very much like last words, um, you know, somebody taking stock of their life. But, you know, the irony of somebody in, in some ways talking about writer's block and then producing a poem that inspires right. people for right. generations. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, that is, and it's, it is, that's what's inspiring about it. I think it, and it actually, it's like, you know, when you choose to be a writer or any kind of artist as a career, your job becomes managing yourself in some way and trying to find, and I don't mean the business side, there's that too. I mean, like trying to find a way to manage your creativity and trying to find a way to replenish inspiration when it's lacking and that happens like that is it's almost actually like after success of any kind on the outward stage i think it's the hardest time to find replenishment of your sort of creative resources in some ways there's different you know there's a different kind of cynicism and frustration that comes from a lack of success but with success there's a there's a also the kind of like frozen quality of that sophomore idea of like, am I ever going to get another good thing? It's not a battle that any artist or creative person ever wins. It's one that they fight 
and or at least grapple with their entire lives. Uh, like you're saying, where one of the great 20th century poets period was dealing with this right at his end and in dealing with it created something magnificent, but no doubt right afterwards felt the same bereft frustration mixed with, you know, longing mixed with retrospective, whatever. I mean, it's like, that's, I just really feel so um, universally true, I think. Yeah. Very relatable. I mean, for artists, definitely, but for anybody who is trying to do good work that requires them to have new ideas and to constantly, you know, be pushing forward and, and trying to top themselves in whatever industry they're in. Yeah. There's the outside and the inside of that. There's like all of the frustration and difficulty and challenges faced when dealing with whatever your gatekeepers and stakeholders and whatever in any field. Then there's the inside of it, which he's, I think, mainly grappling with here, which is how do you keep going and find the, not just the will, but the but the excitement, the passion. One thing I think is the constant interesting struggle, and it's something that I think a lot of writers and are dealing with right now in the strike and actors, is this sort of, there is a temptation to feel really cynical about a lot of things uh, because the strike asks you rightly to look at the business side of the equation and to fight for it and think about it and argue for what you feel you deserve. And there's a kind of cynicism that comes with sort of thinking about that all the time because it turns everything into a widget. And, uh, and it is on some level, on that level, but to do your best work, you need to have a kind of innocence, a kind of passion. Like Pat Riley actually in doing this show, Winning Time, done a lot of research on all these guys. And Riley wrote some interesting books that were kind of like inspirational, like self-help books back in his heyday. And one of the things he talks about is the innocent climb, which is sort of related to this idea that especially once a team succeeded, uh, the thing that gets them there is what he calls the sort of innocent climb. There's this sort of like naivete built in never having done it before. And there's like a deep drive and inspiration that comes from that innocence. Once you have done it successfully, and once you've also experienced failure, the innocence becomes the hardest thing to recapture. But it's also the only thing that kind of gets you back to the source of, in his case, your love of the game, your passion, enthusiasm, what gets you up in the morning to go to work out in the gym. And in you know, my case as a writer, the belief that this thing I'm working on right now in the quietude of my own room could possibly be great in some way that's going to matter to me and make me feel like I've said something that I want to say or or left some kind of mark or whatever it is that you're trying to do, the more you experience, the harder it is to innocently believe in the thing you're doing without second guessing it, without the next thought or sometimes the first thought being, well, is anyone going to buy it? Is anyone going to make it? Is anyone going to watch it? Are they going to like me? They didn't like me last time. They didn't like this. Like there's all of those thoughts to contend with. And I think the journey of any creative person is you know, the, or the challenge, the enemy or, or the obstacle, I should say, of any creative person is for, first and foremost, that voice inside your head and refining that innocence. And so I think in the strike right now, like for business reasons, we turn the obstacle into the idea of getting hired and what the business looks like and all of those things and making a living, which is all important. And that's how people survive. But it's interesting right now, I think, because as we think so much about that, everyone I know is also in 
some kind of profound state of self-reflection about this other side because thinking so much about the business drains a lot of the love and innocence that got you into the business or the field to begin with and you know made you turn down the notion of some safe or seemingly safe or at least more predictable path in life for something that everyone in your life is going to ask you, well, how's that going for you when you go home at Thanksgiving? Time for a quick break because somebody's got to keep the lights on around here, but we'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I mean, I guess that's the, you know, the ideal is making it so that people don't have to focus on the money side of things, that that's just a given. You know, you're going to get paid X amount of money for your work. You can just relax and focus on the creative stuff. And life gets uh, in everybody's way regardless. Like you're always going to have distractions. You're always going to have other things to think about. But I think, you know, at its essence, just boiling it down to the creative process, it's different for everybody. But there are always going to be times in everyone's life where they're struggling with new ideas, where they're uh, unsure if they are on the right path, if they're making work that's important to them, that's important to other people, and grappling with all of those kinds of ideas. And then on top of that, thinking about your own mortality and feeling like, I'm old now, but many people think that I am past my prime. I sometimes feel like I am past my prime and... I don't know what to do with those feelings. Right. And I don't know if I, you know, all the inspiration that has come to me in my life is already out there. And I can look through all of these pieces of things that have inspired me before and try to cobble together something new. Right. But otherwise, what do I do? You know, I'm old and I don't feel like I can go out and seek new inspiration and a new inspiration isn't coming to me. So it's just kind of this, right. yeah, existential crisis as much as it is um, anything else. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, to me, I don't know, it's a, I suppose there was a time before I felt existential crises, but it's hard to remember it. <laughs> I mean, it's not about objective age. There's an age at which you don't think about that, but then there's an age at which you start and never stop on some level thinking about that. And I, that's okay. That's a good thing. I don't think it's, it doesn't make you morbid. I'm not a very morbid person, but I think about those things. And uh, this has been a year in which I had, I had, you know, I lost my father. There was grief and things like that. And, um, and so you think about it more, but I think it's interesting the way you're putting it in regards to creative people and really anyone, but you know, in, in, in winning time, we're dealing with a lot of characters who are famous and successful by all accounts. And we know who they are. 
if you know anything about sports and even sometimes if you don't right. people know who magic johnson is and they know who cream is and they know who, you know pat riley is and uh we look at those people from the outside and or a yates or anyone we admire as a successful person in any field and we kind of take for granted that that's an inevitability that that's who they were going to be or even that that is who they are but that's not really the way it feels on the inside. And it's definitely not the way it felt on the climb, or if you look at it as a climb, on the path, because it's ups and downs. And ultimately, it's downs. It's all the way down into the grave. Like, that's what happens to everybody. And I don't mean it in a bad way. I think it's a kind of a beautiful thing. And it's a human thing and a leveling thing. And we get so wrapped up in our culture, in particular, I don't know any others, with a lack of perspective on those larger sort of the sort of ebbs and flows and sweeps of time and our own mortality is something that I think in our culture we're very uncomfortable with and art grapples with it in some ways but maybe not as directly as it does in other cultures because we're so about the moment in America and maybe the West as a whole but definitely in America anyway but in looking at these characters as people as characters and in in tracking their journeys you are confronted with the very obvious truth that their path was not inevitable. And not only was it not inevitable, it was actually unlikely. And that the every version of negative experience has been a part of that path that led them to become world famous, successful billionaire people on Instagram who only like everyone on Instagram ever posts anything that, may, that is aspirational. Like, I think it's like the bane of our existence that people spend their entire lives not judging it. I do it. But we spend our entire lives on these platforms that tell us that just perform only the positive or performatively the negative, but never really, because it can't, honesty of just life, which is complicated, which sometimes in the moments of your greatest triumph outwardly, you're actually the least secure or the most troubled or whatever it may be. And I think in what I love about poetry the poetry that I love, I should say, is stuff that digs right into that, where it's just this flaying open of, a, of someone's soul that reveals the woundedness, the insecurity of this guy who every young aspiring poet probably would resent at love, but resent because he's fucking successful and I want that. And here he's saying, I feel like I'm bereft of ideas and empty, and maybe I was never that great to begin with. Like that is so honest. And we all have versions of that, all of us, at different times. The longer we are lucky and fortunate enough to live, the more of them we'll have. And we'll all face an end one way or another. And I think, and, and to be able to do it with the kind of grace that I think Yeats does in this poem, which is, you know, because the man who was a few months from dying knew on some level that he was approaching, he knew he was facing it, and he wrote about that. And to do that, to face that and give a gift to the world of your heart and what you're dealing with, knowing, because he knew he was had been massively and wildly successful. So he also understands that he's speaking to some people from on high, but he doesn't feel on high. He feels one step from the grave. You know, in writing, as I have been with my colleagues on Winning Time, about people who have achieved a tremendous amount in life, by the metrics that we judge those things. The thing we're always looking for are, is the humanity. And at the end of the day, everything we achieve is stripped away from us. And we are at time and a time and time again. And, and the thing we're left with is, are these moments that Yeats is sort of 
that's an artistic version of it. We all have those moments, as you say, in every walk of life perennially and with increasing frequency. And I think not running from them is a beautiful thing. Acknowledging them is a beautiful thing. Sharing them is a very vulnerable and beautiful thing. And, and something that um, I certainly as, you know, this year have been, been going through grief, like I said, and like whenever I find people who have also been, there is a connection that you have over that. And I think he's dealing with a form of grief in this poem. And he talks about it a lot, all the people that are now gone, but just himself. This is a poem that is a eulogy in a sense for himself and his own artistic innocence and passion and verve. And, and yet here he is at the very end, just clearly having a seed of, a kernel of, and maybe an, an ember of the same fire that lit him his entire career and maybe making you know, and, and turning that into making one of his most beautiful, lasting achievements. Right, right. And I guess, you know, the, the stuff that you're saying about, it's another kind of irony to me that it's people craving that uh, kind of success and feeling this enormous pressure, feeling like there's something wrong with them that they haven't achieved X by a certain age. And not understanding that the people they aspire to be have all of those same feelings, have all of the same insecurities and have worked through them and that it is a process. And I guess the you know big thing about uh, the arts and sports occupations where the people who are the most successful are some of the most visible and recognizable people on the planet, that it's harder to understand that it's something, you know, that each person has a specific path to getting there. Sometimes it does happen very easily for people and it's, you know, uh, virtually overnight, but most of the time. But the overnight has its own, I mean, that's the thing. I think that it, everyone has their struggles and like that is the universal human truth and we all die. I mean, it, it's like, it's reductive, but it's so, that is the fundamental. And it's, and the people who don't remember that, the ego the narcissists, the Donald Trumps of the world who like have no seemingly no conception of their own mortality, or they're actually so driven by running away from it and a fear of it that they, you know, they become this sort of like reductio ad absurdum of the other. But everybody has, we all are just sacks of meat and bones. And the extent to which we lose sight of that become the ebbs and flows of our own like psychological journeys with, you know, as human beings, we all have gotten accustomed, famous people and regular people and everyone in between have gotten accustomed to controlling their image or attempting to control their image. Everyone looks at themselves as a brand or we're all encouraged to look at ourselves as a brand, even like, no matter what field you're in, people are told like, that's your brand. And there's truth, right? Because you're applying to a job and someone's going to Google you and they're going to find out that you were, you know, in a sorority or a fraternity in college and you did some stupid shit. Like, so we're all from an early age kind of controlling our, the perception of, of, of us or really a, a fake version of ourselves that we are cultivating and curating as our avatar out in the internet world that is the world, the job market, the culture market, et cetera. And um, it makes celebrities, I think, uh, I think different generations react differently. I think you look at like, you know, in the Kardashian world, and I'm not by any means an expert, but it seems to me that they've realized that there is a desire for a certain amount 
of vulnerability. And even they're very like, like they're the most, they make sure that they're doing it within the realm of like still always looking perfect and whatever. Right. Carefully curated vulnerability. Yeah. <laughs> Carefully curated, but it is vulnerability nonetheless. And, um, and there's a messiness and there's a sleeping around and having affairs and that, and like, and a recognition that like, that's part of the fun of people's engagement with them as a story. But it's also, I think, a thing that people ha have a, they don't judge them negatively because of those things. Like Kim got famous with a sex tape and no one judges that negatively. There's no scarlet letter. That's part of her and her family's kind of genius in a way, such as it is. But it's interesting because a lot of the older generation of people in the spotlight would look at that as being like, that's something they're terrified of. Because once upon a time that would like hurt, that would crater a career. You know, and I think a lot of the people in our show, um, the people we're portraying, they have a relationship to fame that's built on the era in which they became famous. And it's all, every relationship people have to fame, as far as I can tell, not being famous, but, but having met and studied and looked at that is always complicated. Uh, even for the people who yearn for it and crave it, it's always messy. It's always complicated. But they had—they were from an era where you had to—you didn't want people to see your dirty laundry, as it were. We're actually in an era now where I think because everyone's able to protect from their dirty laundry constantly, because all they show is their Instagram post, and everyone sort of—and then you meet someone at a party and you find out they got divorced, and you're like, "But you guys were so happy." Because you have no fucking idea because they've just been posting happy pictures around the world the entire time. I think we're in a moment where people are like walking through this harrowed desert of honesty and vulnerability. And when there's an oasis of something, even if it's negative, and it so often is, where a famous person is embarrassed in some way, they might feel embarrassed, but there's something about it that's actually a weird gift to people. And it's perverse right now, but it's a gift because it makes that regular people go, oh, they too are wounded and damaged and having a hard time. Right. And I guess that the you know brings it back to the Yeats poem that it's like humanizing this person who is godlike to the people who admire him. Exactly. And saying, I mean, in the basest possible terms, I've got my own shit. Right. Well, and, it, and it's like, and that is like, it's it being this incredible gift to like, I feel it's a great gift to me Every time I feel that kind of connectivity, whenever I read a memoir of someone who I admire and, I, and they lay bare some, some aspect of their life that may be difficult for them to do, I always like them more for their mistakes. And I think people in general, we do. We like people more for their mistakes, as long as there's contrition, as long as there's an honesty and whatever. Like That's human because we all have it. And so this performance of no one can make mistakes or else they're they're negative, they're a bad person, and we all have to fight so hard to preserve this perfect image like all the time is actually like no one really feels that way. In fact, the people who look that way, like they don't, we don't relate to them as human beings. Like if you think about like the artists that people love right now, like a Taylor Swift, like one of the things that I think, and not being a, the biggest expert on that, but as far as I can tell, like she's connecting to, pe to young people because, and everyone, because she at least is presenting some honest vulnerability, not, not giving us everything, but she's giving us something. Uh, and that's the thing people care about. And it's the thing they connect with. And ironically, oftentimes we misjudge. Uh, we're so afraid of uh, of protecting what we perceive ourselves to be in our image 
we end up actually denying people like an access point in our personal lives and in our professional lives and in our public lives. You know, certainly with with the show and dealing with real people, I you know it's it it part of the what we're trying to do is because it's the thing that we connect with is the vulnerability of those human beings that like oh my god I read about an embarrassing moment in the life of a famous person and we as the kind of creators of the show our reaction to it is not ooh that's titillating let's embarrass that person our reaction to it is we love this moment uh because we can connect to that moment because we've had that embarrassing moment and so it's actually so rather than feel you know it may feel and I I don't know how it would feel to be on the other side of that it may at times to different people feel invasive or I, I, I don't believe it is, but it may feel exploitative. It's not, I think. What it is is a, an attempt to make a connection between their lives and the real lives of people and to use the moments in their lives that may have at the time felt like embarrassing, frustrating, low points. And by contrast to the fact that they are these successful great people in our society show that everyone goes through these things and everyone will have that roller coaster. And it's not the low points that define you. It's the, it's the persistence and the recovery and the growth, uh, out of the wounds and the pain and all that stuff. To me, that, uh, feels like a, that's sort of the, the core theme for me as a creator that I'm most drawn to right now. Uh, and, and, and it, that's why I thought this poem spoke so eloquently to me. Well, I think that is a lovely note on which to finish. Um, thank you so much for this. This is, uh, this is really great. I always love getting a chance to talk about poetry. And, um, I mean, it was like what you were saying, a lot of people bring me movies and, and music. And I love both of those things, but it's nice to have uh, <laughs> something, a little something special thrown at me sometimes. It was really, really fun. I, I, it's a, it's such a refreshing, uh, idea for a podcast. And, uh, I really appreciate you inviting me on. Thank you so much. Thanks, Adam. That was great. Thanks again to Max for chatting with me. You can and should check out the second season of Winning Time, The Rise of the Lakers Dynasty on Max. New episodes drop on Sundays. Okay, quick spark of the week from me. Uh, Only Murders in the Building has started its third season, and it's very enjoyable so far. But I am here to talk to you about a very specific element of it, and that element is Meryl fucking Streep. Listen, is it a surprise that she's amazing in this? No, but she really fucking is. It's disgusting. She does a monologue in the first episode and it's just like, save some acting for the rest of us. She is doing it all. Like, fuck off. You know, I can't cope. She is truly a genius. I know that is not a controversial thing to say, but she can take the most pedestrian piece of writing and just turn it into an acting masterclass. Jesus fucking Christ, I love her. That's it. That's all. If for no other reason, watch the show for her. Okay? All right. And that's about it for this week. Please follow me on social media at Spark Parade. Uh, you know, have a fun and prosperous week. Uh, make some money somehow. Maybe win the lottery. Who knows? 
And until next time, uh, bye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.